Hello, lovelies. Before we get started, let's talk pre-Pesach deadlines. So if you live on the West Coast, it usually takes three days for you to get an order. So to guarantee arrival before Pesach, you're going to want to order by 3 p.m. on Thursday, March 30th. That is the Thursday at the end of the week that this episode is being released. We are getting closer to Pesach, people. If you live in the Midwest, so Chicago, Cleveland, those kind of areas, or the South, Florida, Atlanta, that part of the map, it usually takes about two days for you to get an order. So to guarantee arrival before Pesach, you're going to want to order by 3 p.m. on Friday, March 31st. If you live in New York, New Jersey, Connecticut, what I like to refer to as the tri-state area, it usually takes a day for you to get an order. So to guarantee arrival before Pesach, you're going to want to order by 3 p.m. on Monday, April 3rd. If you order before 3 p.m. Eastern on any day, it will ship out that day. But please remember that once I have shipped it, it is literally out of my hands and there is nothing I can do if it is delayed. Give yourself as much time as possible and hopefully you'll be able to avoid some heartbreak. And bear in mind that if you need to take advantage of my amazing free returns policy to exchange sizes or maybe try a different style, ordering early can only help you. If you think that you might have to return, you're going to want to stop listening to this right now and go place your order. That's the timeline that we're on at the current moment. Tuesday, April 4th, which is the day before Erev Pesach, is my last shipping day. I will not be shipping at all from April 5th to April 13th. You're welcome to order during that time and it will ship on April 14th after Pesach is over. So what are the different ways you can get your hands on one of my designs? If you don't know already, Impact Fashion is a line of size-inclusive, modest clothing available in sizes 2 through 24. I personally design and pattern every single piece in the collection so that it is fitted to perfection and every single piece runs the same. That means that once you know your size, that is your size in every single piece in the collection. Pretty cool, no? You can shop the collection online at impactfashionnyc.com. Shipping is totally free in the U.S. and the return policy is out of this world amazing. You have 30 days to make a decision and don't even have to pay return shipping or any sort of annoying restocking fee. God, I hate those. Impact Fashion can also be found at the address at American Dream Mall. This is a great option for all you last minute folks. The address is a curated modest apartment store and definitely worth a visit if you are not an online shopping type of person. You'll find a lot of brands there that also exclusively sell online and the address is their only in-person location. The American Dream Mall is located right next to the Meadowlands Sports Complex in New Jersey. And to get to the address, you're going to want to park in Lot C, Level 3. Make a left when you walk in and you'll see the address on your right. I'm always happy to chat, whether that's to answer your sizing questions or just to get to know each other better. Find me on Instagram at impact.fashion.myc or on WhatsApp status at 516-953-9391. You can also email me. It's rifki at impactfashionnyc.com. As always, thank you so much for your support during this busy season. I hope you enjoy all of your purchases and have a lovely Pesach and enjoy the show. From Impact Fashion, it's Be Impactful, a show about the women making a difference in their own corners of the world. I'm Rick Gitzquist, and on today's show, I sit down with the founder of Flourish, an organization supporting preemie families to discuss her work. She shares the hardest parts of her NICU experience and how she incorporated them into Flourish's offerings and struggling to bond with her daughter after a rush of a birth. things that comes out of hard times in any form is support for others. And Jody Claristenfeld certainly took her experiences as a NICU mom and translated them into a whole lot of support for other families in a similar situation. This is a great conversation about how our own experiences can really turn around and help others. As a little kid, I guess my parents would say I was very smiley, bubbly, very athletic. I was always jumping from one sports activity to another. I guess you could call me a tomboy. Um, Loving. I come from a super close family. Uh, I have one brother and my parents and we're all still very, very close. And I always had that house where all my friends came over to. 
which was so much fun um, because my parents also got to become really good friends with my friends. So it was nice. That is so, so sweet and special. I know that you have a little bit of the, you know, you founded this organization called Flourish, um, which we're going to hear more about. And you had kind of an interesting story that led you there kind of, you know, your own career path. You were a lawyer and then had this total, you know, life-changing experience. I'd love to know what, you know, what made you decide to pursue being a lawyer and what made you decide to leave it? Because I, you know, from my understanding is that it's not so easy to just become a lawyer. And I don't think we hear of that many people who, you know, go through law school and all of that and then ditch it. Actually, many people end up doing just what I did. But um, to be honest, I'm a lawyer, but I've never practiced. I went into my family's business instead, which is selling um, durable medical equipment, elder care supplies, and continent supplies, a wholesale distributor. Um, But many people actually do practice for a few years. And then when they realize all their blood, sweat, and tears, and billable hours, and life's passing them by, they generally then switch to something else um, either at a smaller firm or uh, business related, but it's a great education because it really teaches you how to think and how to read. And while those skills might be very basic and simple, they really aren't and should not be underestimated. That's such an interesting way of looking at it. I don't think that I've ever thought of a law degree in that way. So did you not enjoy your time in law school that you decided that you didn't want to practice or like, what was the decision-making process there? Yeah, basically that was it. I had wanted to be a lawyer my whole life. I loved watching LA law with my parents when I was growing up. <laughs> Who doesn't? My, <laughs> my parents, really good friends. It was the lawyer who I thought was really cute. Right. So those little things. Um, and I was great at debate in school. So I thought that all of those, they would help me become a lawyer. And once I was in law school, I realized that it wasn't for me. That said, since I'm not a quitter, I went through law school. Looking back on it, I should not have done that. I should have left, worked for a few years and then gone to business school. But, you know, at the same time, like I just said, that education has served me well. Um, basically because I can reason really well and I can speak really well and I can, um, read and understand things for what they say and what they don't say. And that is a pretty good skill set. Yeah, I can see that being very, it's a, it's a skill set I should honestly develop for myself. That's a very good thing to, to know how to do. So what, led you to go from, you know, working in your family business to starting Flourish? And can you tell everyone a little bit about what it is? Yes. Um, Well, Flourish is a platform designed to help educate, empower, and support preemie families on their journey, whether they're in the NICU and well beyond the NICU. Preemie families kind of get lumped in with regular families when it comes to growth trajectories, milestones, and things to look for. However, their journey is very, very different, and there are much, many more challenges that families have to go through while their children are growing and developing. I created Flourish out of what I felt was missing from my own journey in the NICU. And on some levels, what I still feel is missing on my journey now, years out of my NICU experience. And if I can help one family, you know, make their process less difficult than my own, then I know I've done a good thing. I really felt strongly about wanting to help preemie families. I didn't know what it was shortly after my daughter came home from the NICU, but 
I know big life decisions shouldn't be made right after something big or traumatic happens. So I gave myself the time to figure it out what it is that I wanted to do. And as a result of watching my daughter grow and develop and being able to help her, I realized that that's where my passion lied, not in my parents' business anymore. And so I'm fortunate in that I have the opportunity to be able to pivot. Not that it's easy to do, but I'm fortunate to be able to give myself that chance to do so. So you mentioned your own experience with the NICU. Um, I, I'd love if, you, if you're open to it to tell, tell us a little bit about what happened, you know, what happened with that pregnancy, what happened around your daughter's birth, what led to all of these experiences that ultimately brought the organization about? Well, Jenna was born at what's called 28 and four. So 28 weeks and four days. Simply put, I had the easiest 28 weeks of pregnancy and then the most difficult four days of pregnancy. Um, I actually became deathly sick, unbeknownst to myself, um, so much so that I went to my OB's office, who I credit for saving our lives, and who looked as calm and cool as a cucumber, as he said to me and my mom, because my husband was in Europe, not expecting this to happen, that we were going to go to the hospital and not leave until I had a baby. And I didn't fully understand what he was saying. Um, I had this a rare form of preeclampsia. It's a more extreme form. It's called HELP syndrome. And essentially your body's organs start to shut down because your blood pressure is so high. It was near stroke levels. My blood pressure was like 190 over 150. Whoa. Um, and also I had stopped eating for a day and, um, not to get graphic or anything, but my urine turned orange because there was an excess of protein. There was a whole host of things. But when my vision turned double, I went to my OB. We walked into his office at 1230. We walked into the hospital at one o'clock and she was born at 316. Wow. I was that case on the maternity floor that everyone knew me and I couldn't figure out why. Um, I didn't meet my daughter for almost three days. She was born Wednesday afternoon. I met her Friday night. Um, and because I was on so much medication um, that I was hallucinating from all in efforts to get uh, my blood pressure down so the way to um, help women who have HELP syndrome and preeclampsia is to take the baby out. And that immediately drops your blood pressure to some extent, not, you know, not fully back to normal levels. Um, and then I went through rounds of um, magnesium to help that. But I also, with having HELP syndrome, my blood levels and my liver levels were all out of whack. So they had to give me platelets um, while they were even taking my daughter out of my body. They didn't know if they need, need to give me a hysterectomy or not um, because the those levels affect your clotting and your ability to clot. Um, so it was kind of a crazy confluence of events. I will say for myself, one, it happened so fast that I don't really know what happened. And two, I was so out of it because I was so not feeling well that I didn't fully understand and comprehend even until days, weeks, and months later, everything that had happened. And one further thing, to this day, I still haven't fully read up on HELP syndrome. It's H-E-L-L-P. I know that I was near death. I don't need to recount or relive 
what that was, except I do know that it's a miracle that we are both here. So did you, I I can't even not even wrap my head around what, like the words that you're saying are just so out there and, and to have been in that experience, it's like I had pregnancy anxiety and there was like no drama. And then this is all of the drama and like my heart is beating out of my chest for you. Did you go, like, was it a regularly scheduled appointment with your OB or you went because you were like, something is not right here? Yeah, yeah. I saw my OB actually on Thursday. So like six days before Jenna was born um, for like a 28 week checkup. Mm-hmm. And, and everything was fine. And my blood pressure was still um, within normal range higher for me but still what's in normal range like 120 over 80 that's still normal um and then like I said the next week this crazy confluence of events happened over the course of like the next couple of days that led me to um see my doctor and in actuality two days before she was born, I had had a bloody nose that wouldn't stop bleeding. And that was a symbol also of this help syndrome that I did not know, but I thought, oh, it's the fourth trimester, your body's stretching, you know, it's cold and dry heat in New York in the winter, right? You could very easily get a bloody nose. Um, So I thought, it was normal, but then it wouldn't stop. So I got my nose cauterized and I was told that later that that doctor who did it should not have done it. He should have sent me to the hospital right away Mm. because presumably, and I do not remember, he should have taken my blood pressure. And at that point, my blood pressure was surely sky high. Right. And he should not have, but that said, um, you know, it's, it's kind of a crazy experience, but I really think someone was watching over my daughter, myself, my husband, um, you know, and, and again, my OB is just this amazing human being and also all the doctors and nurses as well, um, in the NICU, they're just a different type of people. Right. So what happens afterwards? Because like you mentioned that you were, you know, you were on all of these medications to bring your blood pressure back to a normal level and getting transfusions and all of that jazz. I'm going to assume based on the timeline that you said, and correct me if I'm wrong, that you had a C-section. I was an emergency C-section. Right. So you're recovering from a section. Knocked out. Yeah. You're recovering from a section. You've got, you know, all of these medications and everything to bring your blood pressure down. Your daughter, who is very premature, is in the NICU. How like what was your own physical recovery like? Like, How long was it? You mentioned it wasn't, you know, it was another three days until you got to meet her. What what's happening in your head during this time while she's being taken care of by other people and you are, you know, figure literally barely together those first couple of days I remember asking my OB um, and it was right after I met her so I met her on Friday night Saturday he came to the hospital and I remember first of all I was shocked he was there because it was a Saturday and it was in January and it was beyond frigid but um, I said to him I go I think there's something wrong with me I don't feel bonded to my daughter I gave birth to her days ago and I'm afraid to hold her. I I don't know what's going on. Did I even ask about her in the days that I didn't meet her? I don't remember. And he was like, hold the phone, relax. You are okay. You're more than okay. You have been through trauma and you're still going through trauma. You have to fully process this before you can understand what's happening to your daughter. And I thought that was really, really um, poignant Um, and that he was amazing in telling me that I'm a great mom. 
already without even knowing it because I'm concerned about these issues. And the truth is he was telling me, giving me permission to show up for myself before showing up for her, you know, because she was getting cared for 24 seven. And I didn't fully understand that at that moment. Um, and in the best place where she needed to be as, as hard as that sounds, um, that not at, for Jenna, not being inside me was, was the best thing being inside me was the worst thing for her. So, um, you know, to process that and then be, be like, okay, now what do I do? Where do I go from here? And I said to him, I'm supposed to be pumping milk. I said the thought of it. And he, he got me on the right track along with my husband finding a nurse, getting me on the right track for that. Because up until then she had had donor milk, um, again, because of the magnesium, she was not allowed to have my milk. Um, so I got to pumping and um, ended up with an exorbitantly amount of milk to the point that even when I stopped pumping nine months later, she still had a two month supply afterwards. Wow. Um, but, you know, you forget when she first started when, you know, not that you forget most people don't know when babies are born, you bring them home. They take four ounces of milk generally. Right. Somewhere in that she range. Was having, yeah. She was having 10 mLs of milk. At a oh, feed. wow. So 10 mLs for just for like a frame of reference. When you take cough syrup, can you tell that I have recently had a cold? Yeah. When you take cough syrup and they give you like those little cups and you're supposed to fill it up to the line, that's 10 mLs. That's a yes, which tiny, is essentially two um, teaspoons. Right. Right. So she was having. How two, often was she eating? She was getting fed every three hours. And she was only having that amount. Well, because she was 28 weeks. Right. There's no room for more than that. Right. All of my nerves cannot handle that. No, <laughs> that must have been so. But like, I was strange. pumping like eight ounces of milk. Right. So, you know, there was much, ex there was always so much excess. And I was very fortunate. I didn't, the thing that was actually remarkable to me about a woman's body is that my body knew she was no longer inside of me and I was able to make milk. Right. I didn't think I would be able to because the time wasn't right yet. Right. Um. So, and in, and in effect, the colostrum, those, the dense milk when they're first born is super, super important, especially for, for preemie babies um, when they're first born. So yes. So she basically was having two teaspoons of milk, you know, a few times a day. And on top of that, they were adding um, a formula to it to help increase the cal caloric intake. Oh, like to, to supercharge it kind of. So like in, yes, in a less amount gain, of volume. Yes, to help with the gaining of, of the weight. And her taking that 10 mLs of milk would take something like an hour or so. Ugh. Ugh. And she wasn't taking it orally. Oh, oh, that she had a feeding tube? Yes, because at learning to suck and swallow is a skill that isn't developed until about 34, 35 weeks. So wow. she did not feed from a bottle for quite some time. So how, how does this, like, okay, my... This is probably going to be a very, very dumb question. I have there no are no dumb questions. <laughs> I'll see. Um, the my kind of basic understanding of this, and I have you know no experience um, with 
you know, with preemie babies, with myself, with my family, I, I just don't know a lot about this. My kind of basic understanding is that if a baby is born preemie, they go into the NICU and they kind of like continue the process of development inside the incubators with all of like the tubes and things and horrifying looking stuff that gives me nightmares. And then they eventually sort of catch up to where they would have been. Is that at all accurate? To some extent, yes. Um, when Jenna was born, they told us to um, assume she would go home around her due date. Her birthday, oh, her birthday is January 16th, but she was due April 5th. Wow. She came home from the hospital April 2nd. So roughly, um, you know, around her due date. And just which is 77 days in the NICU. Um, so yes, she needed time to grow in a warm, loving, caring environment that would simulate being inside the mother's womb the most. And the way they do that is through the isolates because they keep a controlled temperature. And also they're feeding them all the nutrients and vitamins, you know, constantly throughout the day. But also what helps them grow and develop is this um, method called skin to skin, or you might've heard of it as kangaroo care, whereby moms and dads, I say the bonus of this is that the dads get to actually join in as, as well. Um, and I know my husband really loved it where you, they take them out of the isolate and basically they're just wearing a diaper and their tubes and they have to set your child up with, because they have breathing apparatus and all this other stuff on your chest, on your bare chest. And then you cover yourself, both of yourselves with a blanket. Um, so that my chest was exposed to her chest or my husband's chest was exposed to her chest and that she could feel our heart beating and feel our body warmth and feed off of that. And I would say vice versa for me and for my husband, we got so much out of it too. And medically speaking, there are studies that show, and I try this experiment on myself sometimes, um, that if you take your blood pressure before like a cuddle session and after it goes down markedly so just from you guys feeding off each other's energy and it just being in that place was so special um and i tell moms that i speak to who don't nurse or because and even at this point you cannot nurse right that is not an option um that to me, this was bonding so much more than nursing. I'd sit with her for four or five hours at a time on my chest. You know, nurse for four or five hours at a time. Right. And also, like I said, my husband can do it um, as well. So she got a good eight to 10 hours of cuddle time between the both of us each day. That's so sweet. And that helps growth too. Um, but in terms of catching up, you know, all kids premature or not are on their own growth trajectory, premature kids, just, yes, they need some extra love, time, support, and, you know, extra help in getting there. And, um, you know, the best thing you can do as a parent is try to get that help for them as soon as possible once they are out of the NICU. I'm not going to say that getting that help is easy because it is not. And that's one of the things that Flourish offers, um, how to get that help uh, state by state, county by county. And while you're waiting for services from your state to kick in, how you can get services that you can either pay out of pocket or providers that take insurance or what have you. 
or apply for financial aid to help get your children um, set up with early growth and development specialists that will help set them up for success later on in life. When it came to your own NICU experience with Jenna, which I cannot imagine being in the hospital for that length of time, let alone with like, it's so, I was just talking about this with a friend the other day. It is so hard when kids are sick because it's just awful. It just is. Like, even if it's just a cold, it's just so, so hard. And then- And you you want to take that cold from them. Yeah, there was actually- suffer. Yeah, there was actually a point when I was sick at the same time. And the whole time, all I'm thinking is like, oh, I feel so miserable and- my child does not understand what's going on and they must feel equally miserable to me, you know, if, if not more, and they, and they also have no idea what's happening. Um, And when it comes to, you know, having like such a prolonged hospital stay with such a tiny baby, what were some of the things that you felt were missing from your own experience? Like what were some of the hardest parts for you about that whole period of time? I think some of the hardest parts were, no matter what I was feeling about myself, about the guilt that I somehow felt that I caused this, what did I do to Jenna? Whatever negativity I was feeling in the moment, when I got to the Nikki door, I had to turn it off and and imagine and act like it didn't exist and exude positivity for her. And um, because I did not want her to feel any negativity. I feel that if I, I felt that if I could give her positive vibes and positive energy that she would feed off of that. And there are studies and statistics that show that as well. Um, I also just felt so alone. There's there's no other way to say it. And it sounds very trite, uh, feeling so alone. Similar to you, I knew no one that had gone through this experience um, until, you know, out of the woodwork, someone said, oh, my cousin, you know, this, or you didn't believe that my brother's sister-in-law's, what you know, things like that. And so, but even then, yes, Logically, you know you're not alone, but who are you going to speak to in order to feel not alone? Because people, and myself included, right? When you're presented with a situation with a friend that you don't know what to say, sometimes you say something that is just wrong and Mm -hmm. makes the person feel worse. Well, at least the baby is out of you. Well, yes, but that doesn't mean that it makes it harder, any easier, excuse me, to leave the hospital day in and day out and leave without my child. No one expects to give birth and not come home with their child. So having someone that I could talk to who fully understood the experience, there was one nurse that I loved um, in the NICU and she had a very similar experience to mine. And I felt like she totally understood. Even the doctors and nurses there who didn't um, give birth prematurely by virtue of their job and just being such compassionate people, they understand, but they're sympathy still didn't rise to the level of empathy. And I say this all the time, but there's a very big distinction, especially when you're talking about health or your baby and children's health, right? There's just something you're just, this shouldn't be happening, right? You're like, I should have gone into the hospital with two, three days later, come out. I personally was in the hospital for 10 days sick. And then when I left, I had the most difficult time leaving. I wanted to leave so bad. I wanted to breathe fresh air, but I didn't want to leave my child there. And I couldn't wrap my head around the fact that I was feeling so many different things that were in opposition at the same time. 
And, you know, it's such a roller coaster that you really do need someone who fully understands and can empathize with you to sit there and say, you're not crazy. You're, it's typical to feel so happy and excited in one moment and then all of a sudden feel dejected. And just someone too for support who has been through it to be like, this is not the easiest road, but it is going to be okay. And even if it's not okay to the what you thought your ideal situation is is like, you know, it's still going to be okay in a different way. And you learn how to adjust those expectations. All of those things are very hard, especially in the world we live in when you see Instagram and everyone has the most perfect picture of their newborn laying on a bed with like, you know, all swaddled up and in the cutest like headband or hat and in the basket with the little teddy bear next to them. Yeah. Yeah. We've seen the photos. I didn't have those photos, but I was upset that I didn't have those photos. But at the same time, I'm thrilled that Jenna was able to do so well because of the place where she was. I wouldn't have been able to have further pictures if she wasn't in the NICU for so long. So it's learning to refocus and readjust your thinking. Right. I know that Jenna is your only daughter, so you might not be able to answer this, but I'm curious how bringing home a preemie baby after so much time in the hospital is different from bringing home a baby born at 38 weeks. Well, my husband has three boys from his first marriage, so he would probably be better to answer that. But, you know, we were just scared. I I think, and I think all first time parents, preemie or not, are scared. I delivered at 37 and a half weeks and we were genuinely terrified. So I don't know that that's necessarily unique. Right, right. All parents, especially when it's your first one, right? You're like, okay, you can go home and you're like, but now I have to take care of this human being. I don't know what I'm doing. Yeah. My <laughs> husband and I felt like we were genuinely like robbing a bank. Right. Like you're just going to let us leave. We don't know what we're doing. Are you sure you want to let us be responsible? <laughs> right. And that happens how many times a day in hospitals across the world. Right. Right. So, um, but we were, we were terrified, especially because, you know, she had had monitors and, and, bells and whistles that she was hooked up to for the first 77 days of her life. And then we were coming home to nothing. Right. And the doctors were saying to me and to my husband, if she wasn't ready, we wouldn't send her home. She's like, great, but can you come with me? Right. (laughs) Well, we were lucky. We had a we had a baby nurse and, and, um, she ended up staying on for longer just because I felt like I needed it, not just for her, but for me, because I was still healing. I was still very fragile. Um, I tell this story and it upsets me still that I let it bother me so much that um, I was walking on the streets near Manhattan, you know, and random people come up. Oh, cute baby, mm-hmm. you know, adorable, how old? So when I said five months, well, when Janet was born, she was two pounds. Right. When she came home, she was five and a half pounds. So probably at this point, she was maybe like seven pounds, you know, so. She did not look like she was five months old. She did not look like she was five months old. No, she did not. But she looked much bigger than when she started. And um, the woman said to me, five months. Are you sure? <laughs> Are you feeding her? And it took every ounce of strength I had in my body not to cry. And our baby nurse grabbed my back as if to say, like, I got this, Jody. don't worry. She's like, ma'am, she is as old as she is supposed to be. And even though we were walking and wanting to walk in the same direction as that woman, 
we just turned and went somewhere else. And she said to me, she's like, Jody, you don't owe anyone an explanation, let alone a stranger mm-hmm. who doesn't know you, your story, Jenna's story. She's like, the answer is she's as old as she is supposed to be. Point blank. But for me, I understood that. But for me, I didn't walk her in a stroller for a really long time. I and I know it had to do with me, not not Jenna, because I think I was still fragile and grappling with the whole situation um, still. You know, it probably took me till she was about maybe nine or 10 months um, to fully feel okay, both mentally and physically. Like physically, my blood pressure by the time she was six months old um, was okay. But mentally, I still was not. Um, I was very delicate. It, and I'm it usually takes a, a tough cookie. Yeah. No, it, it takes a minute. When things like this happen, it's it's not something that you can just kind of like, even if you try to just power through them, it will eventually catch up to you. I, I heard this fantastic phrase recently, and I don't remember what it was in reference to, but I think it applies here also. And it was, you're having a normal reaction to an abnormal situation. It's not that you're crazy or that what's happening is, it's not that you're crazy. It's that what's happening is crazy. And you know, when crazy things happen, we're going to react to them. And we might react in ways that we don't recognize ourselves, but it's a crazy situation. Like you have this, you know, two pound baby, what are you supposed to do the best you can? Yes. And it's so true because I say this to people all the time and I'm like, you're doing the best you can in what is a very abnormal situation abnormal 10% of babies per year. That's a big chunk over 360,000 babies born in this country. And by premature, I mean anything 36 weeks and, and sooner. Um, but it's still very unusual and abnormal. And the responses parents have are very normal. It would be weird if they were just like, oh, okay, no big deal. There'd be something wrong with the parents. They'd be in denial of of something, you know? So yes, to grapple with that, acting normally in an abnormal situation, and then others around you don't quite understand that either. Right. Because they can't wrap their head around that abnormal situation. Right. Right. So, you know, and there's a steep learning curve from day one. And, um, you know, that's why I created Flourish to help. I feel like I'm fortunate enough to be able to have had the time to do research and to curate a fantastic team for, for Jenna, whom I credit every step of the way, along with our caregiver, um, who is nothing short of amazing, um, with helping Jenna in her growth and development, because it takes a village. It takes a village for everyone, but it takes a village plus when you come in a situation like this, right? So, yeah, it's, I mean, I yes. It, it takes a village always. And this is now you need a village and you also need experts, at, you know, and, and having those right people around you. I know that Jenna's about four now. And yes. um, at, at what point did you start thinking about starting Flourish? Like, at, and, and, and what kind of services were most important to you that you, you know, started first with? I started fully thinking about Flourish probably at the time that she was two and a half. I remember going to our pediatrician's office and saying to him, I feel like I can finally stop treading water Mm. and take a deep breath because every day I felt like, okay, what do I have to do? The, you know, and you're just constantly going and moving. Not that I don't feel that way now, but it's just different. 
um, because she's also more of a person now. Right. And, um, but I knew I wanted to offer a few things, which is why there are a few prongs to flourish. Most importantly, the, I, I wouldn't call it coaching, but it's not, it's more like friends to friends, chatting, right? It's just more that I've been in the thick of it. You're in it. I'm sharing my experience with someone. Um, so there's the coaching aspect. Most importantly, let people feel like they're not alone. I wish I had someone I could go to to talk to um, on a regular basis to help me and say, Jody, it's okay. Or Jody, here are the five things that you're concerned about today. Let's unpack them. Let's just look at one. Let's break it down and look it forward. Don't look so globally, look much more narrow. That is super important. Um, so there's that coaching piece. There's also the resource list of, yes, I knew about early intervention or early start. It depends. Each state um, can call it a different thing. The, you know how our government works. States mm -hmm. make some of their own decisions. And um, so where people can go to get their children evaluated. Um, hospitals do provide that, but you have to know to ask for it. And, or you have to have a hospital that's going to share that with you. I don't know where people are going to have their babies. So there is that broken down state by state plus specialists and specialty gyms for kids uh, to get speech therapy, occupational therapy, physical therapy. And I myself thought that that was crazy for a baby who is four months old. What kind of therapy could they be doing? It's quite interesting to learn all the different things that they do with babies to help them at such a young age. And those months are pivotal. So there are lists broken down state by state, county by county um, for people where they can go and seek um, additional help. And each number, phone number and website, everything has been verified by me. Uh, if I tell you many of the resources I was given from the state and the DOE, about 80% were incorrect. Mm. Um, so... Yes. So there's that. And then there's also, I created um, an audio course, which my goal is to have parents listen to. There are about 15 stories and I'd love to add to them. Um, maybe some other moms and dads will share eventually. Um, uh, stories of mine and my husband's from when we were in the NICU, they're only three to five minutes long. I picture people listening to them when they're doing kangaroo care. Uh, with their kid, because you can't talk on the phone. Yes, you can read emails or books or whatever. But um, I couldn't even read a people magazine. So I don't know, you know, if other people could read things, but it's audio because you're holding your child and audio because you know what your child is looking like. I don't need to show you pictures with a CPAP covering their face right. um, or tubes in their belly button or in their nose. Like I don't need to show that they see that. So I thought audio was better, a better format just for that um, so that you can just internalize that. So um, because, well, we're big fans of audio around here. <laughs> yes. Yeah. But um but it's important, right? And and you kind of are a captive audience, at least in that those moments when you're with your child. Um, and why not make it something educational? And it's like a best friend in your ear saying, you will get through this. You just need time. I'm telling you, you know, things it's like gonna that. It's going to be okay. Yes. This, this has been such like an eye opening 
and surprisingly heartwarming discussion. And I'm really grateful that organizations like Flourish are around for people who need them. If somebody wants to learn more about you or about Flourish, Jody, where can they go? They can go to our website, www.flourish.com. Flourish spelled F-L-R-R-I-S-H. They could go to Instagram at Flourish, uh, TikTok at Flourish, LinkedIn at Flourish, and um, Facebook at Flourish. And they oh, can the- also email me, hello at flourish.com. And I will give Jody a props for being one of the fastest email answerers I have ever come across. <laughs> so yeah, seriously, use that email address if it is something that you need. Um, and I'm going to link all of those um places you mentioned in the show notes as well. Jody, well, and thank you so much for helping me spread um, preemie awareness. You know, you're only as happy as your least happy child. And, oh, so true. And <laughs> if your child is struggling, you're struggling. And if I can help a parent not struggle because I can show them how their children can get what they need to help succeed, that's my goal. I love that. And I feel like you already answered the last question that I asked everyone who comes on the show, which is what does it mean to you to make an impact? That that's it specifically. You know, I feel like I feel like Jenna was born this way so that I could do this to help others. That's such a wonderful way to look at what is a really complicated situation. Thank you so much for taking the time to speak with me today, Jody. I really appreciate it. Thank you so much for having me. I appreciate it. And uh, I look forward to hearing great things from you and maybe collaborating again. Thanks for listening. If you'd like to learn more about Jody, her links are in the show notes. On the last episode, I went solo to talk about the focus stress and the feelings that come up when looking at old photos. Listen to it wherever you're hearing this one. The Be Impactful podcast is a project of impact fashion, the clothing line I created because I believe that we are all deserving of the beautiful things life has to offer. See my modest designs that are available in sizes 2 through 24 by going to impactfashionnyc.com. Access all of that by swiping up on the cover art. There are currently 19 people listed by Ora Agunod as a recalcitrant party. View their names, photos, locations, and details of their cases by visiting getora.org slash recalcitrant-parties. The episode art was designed by Michelle Moses, original music composed by Nisa Febben. This episode was produced and hosted by me, Rivki Etzquitz. Catch me on Instagram and Facebook at impact.fashion.myc. As always, here's to making an impact together.